Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, friends? We got a great episode for you today. Our guest is the founder and CEO of Coifin, a financial data and analytics platform for researching stocks and understanding market trends. In today's show, we start with our guest background at the Vampire Squid Goldman Sachs under the now chief U.S. equity strategist, David Costin. Then our guest shares why a personal pain point later in his career led him to start Coifin. He walks us through the platform, which provides investors without Bloomberg access to professional-grade data coverage and analytical tools. We hear about the ability to use visual tools and create a customized dashboard to see what's most important to you. As we wind down, we touch on some wonky client emails and Rob's annual April Fool email to users. A special offer listeners to the Meb Faber Show. Click on the link in the show notes for a 10% discount for new users. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Koifin's Rob Koifin. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Where's here? I just heard you, like every other VC and crypto maniac on the planet, have decamped to Miami. What was the reasoning there? Had enough of the New York winters or what? That's exactly right. So was down here in Miami for my wife's maternity leave after we had our first son and Loved it. Loved not having snow or winter and figured we'd be outside a lot more with a new kid. And so just decided to explore moving down to Miami and just pulled the trigger. I was very surprised we actually pulled it off, but yeah, ended up down here and loving it. Cool. Well, as we chatted about before the podcast started, I'll be down there. And so hopefully we can meet up in person one of these days. The ETF conference listeners has now been moved to April. So if you want to go and say hi, I'll be there. If you're an advisor, you want a free ticket? Hit me up. I think we got some extras. Anyway, you're originally Ukrainian, right? I was born in Ukraine. I was born in a city called Chernovtsi, which is the same city that Mila Kunis was born in. Oh, beauty. What's the vibe, man? You still got family there? Kind of a tense time, huh? It is a tense time. So not a lot of family there. My wife's family lives in Ternopil, which is another city in the West. But basically, Ukraine split down the middle, which is where Kiev is. So if you're in the Western part, 
a little more ethnic Ukrainian and probably speak Ukrainian. If you're in the Eastern part, you're probably a little bit more ethnically Russian or maybe are aligned with more the Russian way of thinking about things. So in the West, I don't think they're worried about any sort of invasion or takeover. I think the Eastern provinces are the ones at real risk where all the problems and the drama is. Do you have some employees based out of Ukraine? A large majority of our employees are based in Ukraine. When I started Koifin, the first engineers I hired were in Ukraine. And so we're a remote company. We're remote in the US. We have some folks in Argentina, but we actually have an office in Ukraine because we have so many people there. We have an office where people go into. And so we do have a pretty big presence there. Our employees have been a little bit nervous and anxious and seeing what's going on. So Western side? Majority of them are in Kiev. Yeah. Been on my to-do list to visit one day. Beautiful city. Before becoming a software entrepreneur, you're an investment guy. If you had to guess, taking your insights as an investor, what's your insight as to a potential outcome here? Do you have any over a coffee estimation on how this resolves itself? We're recording this, by the way, listeners, beginning of February. So by the time this publishes, we'll see if Rob is right or wrong. But what do you think the actual outcome is here? I don't have an educated guess. I'm sort of like scratching my head like everyone else and being like, what the hell is going on? It doesn't seem like there's an end game or any sort of strategy or plan by Putin sort of flexing his muscle, trying to stay in power and just showing that he's the victim. I do think that at some point they will probably take some other regions just like they did with Crimea. So probably some of the regions bordering Russia, maybe some of the regions bordering the Black Sea. There's a country called Moldova on the Western side, which is Russian controlled. So there may be some areas there which they take over. I think that's what's going to happen eventually. And I think there will be some kind of agreement signed or understanding signed that'll sort of keep the peace. I do think Russia has this fear of NATO and they, as a wannabe superpower, they're a little bit uneasy about NATO encroaching and expanding, and they're obviously not in NATO. And so their alignment with China, I think, makes sense in pushing back on this NATO presence. And so unfortunately, Ukraine is caught in the middle. And I really hope that it's going to sort itself out and peacefully in some way. Yeah. Fingers crossed. You were a Goldman city guy in a previous lifetime back before they were the vampire squid or the hero, depending on your perspective. What was your focus? Were you a fundy guy? Were you a macro guy? Real estate? What were you doing? I started on Wall Street covering REITs, real estate investment trusts. At the time, it was the smallest subsector in the S&P 500. This was 2002. And doing sell-side stuff, building models, writing research reports to give me a really nice entry into Wall Street and how to look at companies. And then about a year after I started, my boss at the time, David Costin, was moved into a group called Portfolio Strategy to replace Abby Joseph Cohen, who was the strategist at the time. Basically, they wanted him to do just a lot more bottom-up analysis. Abby was just macro market call. And so I transitioned to Portfolio Strategy in Goldman Sachs Research and then started focusing on the entire market. So we were looking at every single company, every single sector, global trends, and really trying to analyze the data, analyze trends that are going on with valuation, with fundamentals, with different top-down and bottom-up themes, make sense of it all and tell our clients at the time what to do with their money, what sectors to overweight, what sectors to underweight, stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. He's now the head equity strategist, right? So he was the equity strategist when he transitioned in 2003. Abby was there for a number of years being the 
I forget the exact titles they had. They were doing slightly different things. And then at a certain point, Abby moved to, I think she's in wealth management now or some part of Goldman. And so he remains the chief US strategist. He puts out some great work. REITs must have been an interesting time there because they've been around for a long time. But particularly, I feel like after the internet bubble burst, REITs had a big moment because there were certain asset classes that sailed through that 2000, 2003, not so much in the financial crisis, but in that early 2000s period, they really started to get a bunch of tailwinds. Was that accurate? Yeah. So REITs kind of interesting. They have their own designation, which means that they have a special tax structure. They don't have to kind of pay taxes. Investors pay taxes, but the caveat is they have to pass within 90% of their income out as dividend. What's interesting about our group at Goldman and the reason David was promoted to portfolio strategist, which is a role with much higher visibility, is he looked at the real estate sector from a corporate perspective. So he looked at return on equity and return on cash and CapEx and how they're allocating money and their growth rate. And all these companies were doing it very capital effectively, capital efficiently, and generating a very high return on capital at a time in 2000, 2001, 2002, when you had all these tech stocks that were falling off of very high valuations. And so at that time, the sector started getting more and more exposure and more mutual funds and pension funds started paying attention to the sector. And I think David did a really good job of putting the context of how a REIT makes money versus other sectors. And that's why people noticed him internally and why people externally recommended him to be a portfolio strategist. But REIT started, it was like EOP and EQR, maybe GGP or Boston Properties were in the S&P. And then over the years, more and more were added to the S&P 500. As the sector grew, as more capital got allocated, as these companies were acquiring more properties around the country. And I don't know what the sector is now, tick sector, but at the time it was just a subsector. I remember David famously, we had a morning call at Goldman and the analysts would go on and talk to the sales force and pitch a research that they just put out. And all these tech people would go on and be like, Sienna is going to go up 100x and CMGI. And he would always get up and be like, and now for a company that actually makes money, let me tell you about whatever. And so he always had a really interesting style of delivering things. One of the most memorable things I did there was introduce a report called the Hedge Fund Trend Monitor. Basically, I stumbled on this data one day in fact said I was playing around with it. I was like, holy crap, do hedge funds report their holdings? This doesn't seem right. Hedge funds are secretive. And then we started looking at the data and discovered 13 apps. And David's like, put it together, see what you come up with. And I started aggregating stuff. And we started thinking about how to think about most concentrated names, how to think about different sector exposures, how to think about where things are changing. And that was a really popular report that I think still has a lot of traction in the investment community. Unknowingly, I've certainly referenced you over the years. We ended up writing a book on 13F investing, and I remember that report being a particularly insightful one, and so it all comes full circle there. It's funny because I always wish that REITs, farmland is a pet topic we talk a lot about in this podcast that's hard as hell to invest in for most folks, and I've always said I'm surprised more farming conglomerates or funds don't try to roll out a REIT structure, but maybe one day. In a different job, that would be my career choice, but too much work for me at this point. A lot of benefits there on the tax side, a lot of benefits on the cash flow side and the leverage side. They're just able to have very high return on equity because of the high leverage and the steady cash flows. I remember doing the analysis when we started looking at sector allocations and looking at the analysis of the best performing sector. This was in 2003 or four. I was like, it has to be tech. Tech grows fast. Tech is high earner. I know Staples. Staples was the best performing sector for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And when we looked at it, I was like, this isn't right. Staples are boring companies. They only grow earnings 4%. And 
at the end of the day, as long as you're steadily compounding your earnings, that's what matters and not having these huge cycles. I'm sure tech at some point over the past couple of years has surpassed Staples because of the run, but at that point it was Staples. We did a research piece or a webinar on REITs where we were showing that REITs, I forget the exact time frame, but it might've been the last 20 years, was the best performing asset class across the board, which I think would surprise a lot of people. But even going back to the 1920s, we talk about this of the 30 or so French Fama industries, if you look at top one and two, it's one is tobacco and two is beer. So say what you may about boring, but the cash cows, anytime you sell to human desires, ends up being a pretty good market. So you were in this financial world in New York, crushing it, hopped over to some asset management, hedge funds. What's the time horizon here? Is this around financial crisis or what? So Goldman Research, I went to work on the prop trading desk in London for a little bit. This was 2008, not great timing. This was in London. Then went to a macro fund called Caxton. Mm-hmm. World famous shop. A world famous shop. So was there for a little bit, got some exposure to macro and how macro investors trade. Then went to City Equity Trading Strategy to be on the trading desk, looking at thematic trade ideas and how to express them in options and baskets and ETFs. Pretty interesting job. We had an internal book that we were running and we were pitching clients' ideas. So that was a little bit of best of both worlds. And then went to Lixor Asset Management, which is SoftGen, working there, a macro team. And then lastly, worked at Techni Capital, which is a long, short hedge fund that was spun out of Duquesne everything from risk to options trading to all this other stuff. So as you can tell, I can't hold the job down for very long, uh, not very employable. What was the origin story for wanting to strike out on your own? After Techni, I started looking for my next role and decided to start investing on my own for a little bit and seeing how I do in the market. And with that, wanted to get some tools to analyze the market, understand what's going on. And I'd used Bloomberg and FactSet and CapIQ and everything under the sun in my previous jobs. But now that I was paying for it myself, I wanted to find some other resources. So I know Interactive Brokers has so much data. I'm sure they have a bunch of tools that would be great for me. And it was just the same, very difficult to use interface as I had seen 10 years before. I don't know how someone doesn't buy Interactive Brokers. Maybe you can buy them or LBO them. And just slap like a pretty front end on them and you have the best possible brokerage out there. They have such a confounding customer service front end. I think they know what they're good at and they're good at price and access. That's what they compete on. But that's not a bad way to think about what we're trying to do is sort of take the access and accessibility and the coverage of interactive brokers and think about it more from a research and analytics perspective. Jeez, they're a $30 billion shop. That's their market cap. My God. They're pretty big. So much for LBOing them. You can LBO that. They should just buy Robinhood. There you go. Perfect. Interactive Brokers buys Robinhood. There's their pretty front end. Can you imagine trading all the instruments on Interactive Brokers on your app with no Y scale? Yeah, exactly. Well, the Interactive Brokers, all these meme stop and crypto people start to learn about futures and spot Forex. There you go. That's the real juice. Okay. So what was your style at this point? You'd kind of bounce around a number of different places. Were you medium-term equity person? Were you trading currency pairs? What were you doing? Fundy, macro, what? A little bit of a mutt. So a little bit borrowing from all these different styles that I learned. So liked looking at stocks and just looking at companies, liked looking at options as well and thinking about what is the vol market saying and can this be expressed in options more efficiently or get better leverage? 
I like looking at macro and thinking about what are the top-down views or top-down themes to think about in terms of either the Fed cycle or thematic trends. And I like looking at technical analysis and really thinking about, is the market confirming my views or is it saying something maybe about the macro that I'm not thinking about? So just a little bit of everything and then just trying to think what is the best way to implement something, to implement an idea. So you could have a macro idea or thematic idea and there's just a number of ways to do it. And sometimes it has to do with liquidity. Sometimes it just has to do with this is the most direct way or has fewer other factors that are impacting it. So my trading style at the time was probably... 40% single stock, 40% ETFs, and 20% futures, options, currencies. I'd say with currencies, the way I think about currencies is just you get massive leverage. That's the beauty of it. Typically, when there's a trade to be had in currencies, there's probably trade to be had in indices or equities or ETFs. Maybe if you're playing the Turkish lira and what they're doing there, that's probably a direct currency trade and more dirty to play it in equities. But typically, the themes that I'm thinking about in terms of where the Fed is or which themes are working... That's typically more directly expressed in equities or ETFs or indices. So you were saying, all right, kind of like Meb, open-minded, I'll use whatever works uh, across whatever discipline. Also like Meb, I'm a cheap bastard. I'm not going to go pay for Bloomberg out of my pocket. I joke on this podcast that in the very, very early days of my career, my method for getting access to all these various data sources was through friends who were at graduate school at Stanford. So they had the logins for all the various databases, which they so generously shared. Thank you, GSB. So you said, okay, I'm looking around, I'm trying to find a good solution. Most people would stop there and just either fork up for one of these or cobble them together. What was the next iteration for you? So it was the first time that I got a chance to really explore what's out there and really trying to use the products for my workflow. And so the products that were meant for individuals just didn't have the capability to do what I wanted to do. They didn't have the data or they didn't have the actual functionality. And then on the professional side, not only was the cost very high, so that's one variable, but they were just very unpleasant to use. They were all very old. With Faxon and CapIQ, the use case is Excel. You get that data to put it into Excel. You don't get those platforms to use the platform. On the front end, you get the platform for the data. And typically, you're doing all the analysis in Excel. And when I started to put together my resources and thinking about what I need to use, I was just like, this is crazy what's going on in this sector, in this field. You have this technological revolution. You have these software companies that are creating these beautiful products, companies like Tableau that are really revolutionizing how data is visualized. And then in finance, it's just kind of crap. It just looks like it's still from the 1980s and just started going down this rabbit holes. Why is that the case? Why is it that this is a field where there's just nothing innovative happening and everything's just super old? And the response I got back was, look, the data is super expensive. Nobody knew could come in because the data is just really expensive. And so I started analyzing and started calling around being like, how much does that actually cost? Is it hundreds of millions? Is it tens of millions? Is it hundreds of thousands? And I convinced myself where I was able to find out that the data is expensive. It's not cheap, but it's not overwhelmingly expensive. And what I wanted to do is available. And there's data out there that is available to build a platform that is more intuitive, more functional, easier to use than some of the platforms out there. So that's when I started and how I started thinking about this concept of Coifin and started refining it and decided to bootstrap it in the beginning. I sort of said, hey, this is something I want to build for myself. It's something that I'll hire a couple of engineers to help me build. 
I felt very strongly that I knew what I wanted the product to look like, having been a user and investor, but I didn't really know how to build a product or how to build an engineering team. And so started pretty small with a team in Ukraine. And then once I saw some results, decided to expand that team. And so slowly but surely, we were building the product, getting feedback, putting it out there. I saw more and more people starting to use it. And then at a certain point, there was enough traction. There was enough opportunity that I saw in this company that I raised some venture capital money, started expanding the team and moving a little bit faster. What year would this be in the timeline? I decided to launch Coifin on March 7th, 2016. Congrats, man. Five years. Well done. You survived the gauntlet of the most startups getting to be a toddler. When you looked around, what was the main missing piece? I remember going back 20 plus years and using things like TradeStation, using, I can't even remember at this point, so many of the various software data programs. What was it that you said, look, I want this, but this isn't out there, at least version one, and then we can walk forward to what you have today? So the first thing is the data coverage, is I want something that covers a bunch of different assets and looks across asset classes and not just focused on one thing. So Cap IQ very much focused on equities, doesn't have a lot of stuff on economics or macro. Morningstar is obviously very mutual fund focused. So the data coverage, I wanted a platform that has a lot of equity data, fundamentals, valuation, but also other asset classes like mutual funds, ETFs, economic data, bonds, currencies. And so the data coverage and professional grade data coverage was important to me. The second thing was really the analytical tools to turn that data into information. So I didn't want a platform where I had to suck stuff into Excel and do the workflow in Excel. I wanted a platform where I had the functionality in the platform to do what I wanted it to do. My favorite, personally favorite platform out of all the platforms I've used is Bloomberg. Bloomberg does a lot of bad things about it, including the cost and some UI stuff, but it's actually really powerful. And it's really powerful because it has a lot of functionality. Not only does it have just a ton of data, but it has 30,000 functions that you can use to analyze that data. Michael Bloomberg was early on in some of these concepts that today are pretty widespread. And he built all the graphing stuff himself and able to really visualize and graph any sort of data. The fact that you can do keyboard shortcuts and access stuff really quickly. Superhuman is a company that popularized this in the email world. And now it's sort of becoming a trend in software. But with Bloomberg, these keyboard shortcuts, they did it because there was no mouse when they started putting their platform together. So this ability to really get through the data, through graphing, through dashboards, through snapshots, and having that functionality in the platform, that was super, super important to me. And the last thing is just having a modern and intuitive user interface. So something that was easy to use somewhere where you could click around and really felt more like a Airbnb than it did like a interactive brokers or a Bloomberg. That was another thing that was important to me. Sort of backing up to my career, one of the things that my first manager, David Custom, was really good at is presenting data, is basically taking a bunch of data and then saying, all right, this is how we should organize it, or this is the thing we should call out. And we'd spent a long time in our reports really thinking about how do you organize, how do you visualize, how do you present data? And that's not something that was really done on Wall Street. People would just throw data on a page and throw a bunch of numbers and say, here, read it. Whereas he spent a lot of time thinking about how is the data interpreted and had me start reading Edward Tufte books and thinking about data visualization, stuff like that. So that's something that was ingrained in my mind very early on in my career. And that's something that I really appreciate. And that's something that I wanted to show up in the platform as well. How long did it take you to get version one out? 
I imagine it was not cheap, although you seem to have really been adept at the remote team before it was cool. What was the original rollout? Friends and family, or did you do it where it's actually public facing pretty quick? One of the things that I thought about is what can we innovate on? What can we add is the business model, is how we sell the product. And when I looked around in the tech world and the software world, the best companies, the fastest growing companies were growing because they were freemium. They were giving away a bunch of the product for free and then charging for more advanced functionality. And that's something that I thought was brilliant. Something that I thought was product-led growth, that if you have the best product out there, you let people use it, they'll pay you for it if you're solving a problem for them. So right from the beginning, what we wanted to do was have a freemium model and have a substantial portion of our product be available for free and then charge users for more stuff. So to answer your question, the first version was probably about 18 months after launch and there was iteration. I found a designer on Craigslist that I was working with and we were designing it. And to be clear, did you have any software chops yourself? Zero, zero software chops. And so I just worked with the designer. First iteration was me working with these software engineers, drawing it on pencil and paper and giving it to them. And then when the product came out, I was just like, what the hell is this? This is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. They're like, well, get a designer. I'm like, a designer? What do they do? <laughs> I found a designer. Her name was May. She had a full-time job. And on the weekends, she was helping me design a bunch of the mock-ups and a bunch of the screens. And it's just so funny seeing the original designs and what Coifin originally looked like. The skeleton was there, that it was single-page application. It focused on charting. There were things that you could do on the side to impact the charts, and there was a menu. And the way I thought about it was from a Bloomberg perspective, these are the 50 functions that people use every day, and I want to focus on 10 at first. So focused on graphing and movers and financial analysis and mutual fund description and GM, which is the performance graph. I really thought about it from a modular perspective. Like We want to create modules. We don't want anything to depend on anything else. And that's really important about our product is it's a very flat structure. So it's a very modular structure, which is really easy to navigate and to think about. Release the first version, put it in the wild. Just first, we didn't even have a website. You would go to Coifin and it would be the app. And we had a debate internally whether that was good or not and decided to have a landing page to describe what it is. Because some people would go to it and be like, oh my God, what is this? Feels like you're about to steal my information. I don't know what this is. So we had a little gateway with a landing page. And then just blasted out to my network, had almost no usage. I was going around investment clubs. I remember when I went to Columbia University and pitched it at the investment club there, and we had 18 people sign up. And my co-founder messaged me, he's like, oh my God, 18 people signed up. And 17 of them didn't use it the following day. It was very iterative, thinking about what are people using it for? Why are they using it? And I was reading a lot of websites at the time on product management, on how to think about product development. It's a whole science. It's a whole framework. Why do people use things, the jobs to be done framework? If you have something, how do you figure out what's working? Why are people using it? How do you add to that? Do you focus on things people are using or do you focus on things that people aren't using? And do you focus on things that people are requesting? And I remember in the beginning, people were just requesting stuff and we were doing everything. And then at a certain point, we're like, wait, what the hell are we even building here? So having a framework to prioritize features and having a framework to define our users was important. And so we made a lot of mistakes, but have fixed them, figured them out and have been uh, moving forward, which is important. So you become a software founder, you start to figure it out and software is all about implementation, iterations. Where are we at today? What are people mainly using this for? If I abstract our software away or how we're thinking about our users, there's really five things that our users are doing that we want to attack 
and help them do from a software perspective? I assume the vast majority are professional slash engaged individuals. So the majority of our users are individuals. And then the second largest segment is financial advisors. And it's individuals who need more advanced tools than Yahoo Finance or other brokerage. So it's not like Robinhood people who are like, hey, I wonder what the EBITDA margin is of Apple and how it compares to Facebook. So the majority of individuals don't know what to do with our software because it is pretty advanced. There is a learning curve. The biggest segment of individuals we have are software engineers. They tend to have more disposable income. They tend to be a little more quantitative. A lot of former Wall Street people are using us as individuals, but it's definitely for the more advanced individual user. And to answer your question directly, so the free version, which is 90% of our users, 95% of our users is free. Then we have three tiers. We have a basic tier, which is $15 a month paid annually. We have the plus tier, which is $35 a month paid annually. And then we have the pro tier, which is $70 a month paid annually. The difference is you get more data, more functionality, more customization as you go up in the tier structure. Is one of the biggest levers the ability to export data of the tiers? What's the main levers between those? Taking all those categories one by one. So on the data side, for example, the mutual fund data is only in our pro tier because we have to pay per user for that data. And so we have to put it in the higher tier. We know that financial advisors typically use that data, so they have a little bit more disposable income. So that's one example of something that's just in the pro tier. And we have some very basic functionality in the free tier for mutual fund data, like looking at a chart or just seeing what mutual funds we have. Downloading data is in our middle tier. So if you wanted to download a dashboard or download the constituents of an ETF, you can do that in the plus or pro tier. So the financial data for a stock in the free tier, we only have three years worth of free data. But if you wanted to look at the full five years, that's basic, 20 years is plus, and then full history is pro. So that's an example of data availability. Another thing is the ability to create your own dashboards. So one of the benefits of Coifin is you can create your own watch list and dashboards of different securities, of different graphs, mix and match different ways to look at the market. So if you've ever used the Launchpad feature on Bloomberg, which is allowing you to customize how you want to look at the market, that's what the dashboards are replicating. And you get two free dashboards in the free version, and you get eight in the basic version, you get unlimited in the plus and pro version. Another example is transcripts. So company transcripts or company filings are only in the plus version. We have some premium news sources like Reuters that are only in the basic enough version. So just thinking about more advanced workflows, customization, more advanced professional data. I interrupted you. Sorry. You were going to walk through the main use cases for why people are interacting with it. The five buckets we think about are analytics, discovery, tracking, collaboration, and execution. If you abstract away what our users are doing, sort of falls in those five buckets when it comes to investing. So on the analytics side, the most popular feature by far is our graphing, our ability to graph any sort of time series or any sort of financial data. So obviously stock prices or mutual fund prices or total returns. But then if you think about any financial or any economic data or ETF flows or drawdowns or whatever it is, you can graph that on Coifin very easily. And so you could just type in a series and add the series and then move the graphs around. That's really powerful. That's differentiated. That's the number one feature. The second feature is really the dashboards I just mentioned, which is customizing the different modules to how you want to set up your platform. So in the dashboards, you can have a watch list and two graphs or three watch lists or four graphs together, mix and match different things. And that customization feature is super powerful in our second most used function. The third most used function are the snapshots. And snapshots are 
a way for a user to analyze a specific security. So we have a overview snapshot, a description snapshot, a dividend snapshot, an ETF exposure snapshot for companies. For ETFs, we have a constituents snapshot where you could see the constituents, but also see the contribution of each stock and each sector to that ETF's performance. We have mutual fund snapshots. We have different snapshots for the securities for people to really just get a view of that security without having to look up every single item. So that's the third most used function. The fourth are market dashboards. So we have a bunch of market dashboards that you can browse different parts of the market. So a factors dashboard where you can see how factors are performing, sectors, currencies, indices, global yields, yield curves, different ways of slicing and dicing the market. And that's our fourth most used function. And then there's a bunch of functionality that's on the tail end. So we have news that's pretty popular. We have a scatter plot that's used by a lot of people. We have a function that's one of my favorite functions I created for myself called the lots of charts function, where you put in an ETF or a watch list or an index, and it shows you all the charts in that index or ETF. And so if anyone is looking at technical analysis or trends, that's a really fast way of being able to see that. We got 13 Fs in there or what? You know, we don't have 13 Fs and that's because the data is super hard to license. None of the providers will give us the 13 F data in the full view. They'll give us the top 20 or the top 10. I think what we're going to do is really just use the SEC website and get the data ourselves because the data is actually better organized now than it used to be. There's like a more defined way of how 13 Fs have to be filed and how they have to be tagged in each security. And so I think we're going to be getting that data ourselves. But Coming from the person who created the hedge fund trend monitor from 13Fs. That's what I mean. Come on, man. Come full circle. The dashboard's great. To me, that is a pretty nice homepage. So many of these apps and websites, you can get stocks and that's about it. But particularly for the macro people that want to see a number of different things, it's really well done. When are you guys going to build an app? Is that in the cards? Yeah, it's in the cards. Just expanded that team to get that out faster. It's sort of been lingering a little bit longer than I wanted. But everything goes right, should be out by April. Oh, wow. Soon. Soon, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Our platform is desktop first. You can't do the workflows that we're trying to do on the phone. But the phone is obviously very important in terms of being able to track your portfolio or watch list or news or just what's happening in the market. And so we've been really thinking about what goes in the app, what's the future of the app, how does it connect to the overall application. But it's looking good. It's going to be great. It's going to be hopefully out in April. Good. Well, looking forward to that because you guys have found a wedge there, I think, on what I was saying with the dashboard. As far as roadmap, you've built this company, successful. What's the future look like for you guys as you look out to 2022 and beyond? Is it just endless feature requests from users? Do you have some designs on expansion to certain data silos or features? What's next for you guys? The future for Coifin is really to be the financial operating system for different users, for different investors. And what that means is when I look at our platform, we have everyone from students to hedge fund managers using our platform, which is really strange because they're not the same user persona, they're different user personas. But the reason that they're using our platform is because they have common workflows and they're able to customize the system for their own use cases. And so when I think about the future, I think about that power and that place that we have of being able to customize the platform for the use case of that particular investor. So our vision in the future is that we're going to be connected to any sort of financial data that's out there 
And then having that toolkit that the user can then choose of how they want to look at that financial data, whether it's through portfolio analytics or model portfolios or portfolio optimizations or just graphing or snapshots and being able to mix and match how they want to look at the market, what asset classes to look at and how they want to organize. Tell me some highlights and lowlights of this experience. Software designer, entrepreneur, working with customers, I imagine... We have almost 100, probably over 100,000 investors now. So I could tell stories all day about fun, sad, insightful feedback we get all the time. But what's it been like on your side? Was it just a year of meme stock requests last year? Anything funny, weird, different that you want to pass along? So many different users and people. And we have over 300,000 users now. It's interesting how people interact uh, over email. Just people are polite and some people are nice and some people are engaging. Other people are just dicks. And I'm sorry, can I say it? Yeah. That's my first rule of social media and just being a human in the 2020s is DBAD. Don't be a dick. That rule is constantly violated, but we've gotten our fair share of anti-Semitic responses to my emails, which is super strange and always a little weird. We had Barbara Streisand's assistant reach out to us one time and try and set up a call with Ms. Streisand. That didn't happen because we don't have options data on our platform yet. She's a big trader. I didn't know she's still cranking out. Good for her. That was my favorite help email to see. I wish we did have options data, so try to convert her. You can build it out just for her. Say, hey, you give us whatever's above the pro feed. It can be the influencer celeb feed. We'll do some custom bespoke work. <laughs> yeah, I used to watch her in Yentl, and that's going to be a client. First year we were around, I sent out an April Fool's email. The first year we sent out an email, we're rolling out a feature that predicts the stock market with AI and ML. And it's 99% accurate and click here to access it. Click here is Wikipedia page to April Fool's. And so people didn't even click on the link. They're just like replying, how could you do this? There's no way this makes sense. That's always fun to see. Probably the highest click-through rate you ever get for a campaign. But it's even funnier that it didn't even get click-through is just read the headlines, comment. Two years ago, we did one. This is during COVID. So we're just like, hey, difficult environment out there. Get Coifin for life for $9.99 click here. And there's April Fool's. A lot of people found that funny, but then you also have a lot of people who are pissed off. They're like, how dare you waste my time? That's always interesting to see if who has a sense of humor. And then last year, we had a April Fool's of Coifin is completely pivoting towards crypto. So we had an email with me and Rich, my co-founder with laser eyes. The stock thing isn't working or this traditional stuff isn't working. We're pivoting towards crypto. And we had a link But the sad part is the link, apparently Wikipedia got hacked. So the Wikipedia April Fool's link directed you to like a porn site. And so people are emailing me like, have you clicked on the link? Did you? And I'm just like, dude, relax. It's Wikipedia. And they're like, no, click on the link. So I was just like, oh my God. You got to be careful with the crypto crowd. I had posted a tweet years ago from Switzerland with my friend, Jeremy Schwartz, the head of research at Wisdom Tree and joking that they were putting out a Litecoin ETF and how quickly that whipped around the world and how angry people were. And Jeremy, who's at a big corporate <laughs> company, whose PR team wasn't amused, uh, my joke, but was funny anyway. It's good to have a sense of humor, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. What's the plan? You're just going to stay independent? You're going to keep growing? How many folks y'all got now? 25 employees looking to do our Series A pretty soon. So it's still a pretty young company. For us, like the future build the best product out there, solve our users' needs in terms of financially getting acquired, whatever that's going to take care of itself. We're in a space that just has so much potential and so much opportunity and so much change. And we have this really interesting positioning of having the best 
product and analytics out there that people love and rave about. And so we're just going to be building functionality, solving our users' needs. And I think the outcome will take care of itself. Your career span both starting a company and being in a number of funds and big investment shops, most memorable, good, bad, in between investment. I think the investment I remember the most is CMGI in the 90s. I don't know if you remember. Oh, God. You just caused me sweaty palms. You just triggered me. <laughs> yeah. When I was first started learning about stocks and it was called the incubator. It's an incubator. Went from 20 to 2000 to like one <laughs> to zero. I bought it at some point before 2000 and obviously sold it at a huge loss, but that was fun. One of my first experiences trading and investing. In- you weren't the only person. I mean, everyone owned it. I owned it. There's so many things about this one. They had named the Patriots Field with CMGI Field. So as my local Lakers facility is now called Crypto.com, there's a bunch of research that shows if you're a public company that name a stadium, the stocks are just an absolute dumpster fire, the worst sentiment indicator. It was almost like a VC portfolio roll-up all into one. Alta Vista was a portfolio company. There were a couple of legitimate ones in there, but a hundred of them and probably two got acquired and had a real product. The others were just market cap to clicks, right? That was the valuation measure. I have to look at the eventual post-mortem. It was like 10, 20, $30 billion company. Where do people go? They want to find out what you're up to, what's going on in your world. Check out the software, give it a try. What's the best spot? Yeah. Go to koifin.com, create a free account. Takes two seconds. Start using the software. And if you like it and we help you analyze the market, track your investments, then upgrade to the paid version. Awesome. Rob, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. We've had a great time. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.